The battle of Britain is about to begin. Back to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight we're going back to the books. We're going back to discuss history. And we're not going to discuss it in the usual fanboy sense where we're talking about how great aces are, how wonderful specific soldiers have been. We're really going to dig into some of the uncomfortable and darker sides of this history. And we're going to ask some questions that might be tough and that people might not want to know the answers to. But the point is, in reading any history out there, we're going to look to find something that we can take away. Now, I've had the pleasure of reading through Eric Schmidt's book, Black Tulip, which is all about Eric Hartman. And we're fortunate to have Eric on the podcast tonight to talk about his book. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Great to be here. Thanks. Absolutely. It's always uh, always good to have another author on. And I brought Steve and Brett back. And I'll short circuit all their happy discussion between themselves about how much they're freezing, how warm it is in Florida, and everything else to say, Steve, you are going to make it through winter, right? We don't have to emergency evac you to Florida. I will make it. I actually scheduled an emergency trip, so I'm going to be uh, visiting uh, Brett down there in the uh, free state of Florida, doing some actual tabletop gaming here in a little bit, so it'll be a fun time. I know. I, I think the rumor is, Brett, we're bringing an RV and parking in front of your uh, apartment complex. Is that okay? Yeah, what's the guy from uh, Christmas Vacation where the, <laughs> the uncle shows yeah, up? Exactly. Exactly. What could possibly <laughs> go wrong? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that's pretty much us. Well, Let's skip all the usual lead pursuit banter and let's hop right into the book. So, Eric, I'm going to use your own words against you when we're talking about uh, Black Tulip here. Fair uh, enough. You, you, you wrote in there, any work of history tells you about the author just as it tells you about the subject. And I think that's something really key for people to understand when they pick up your book is that it isn't, as we say, the standard fanboy analysis of an ace, this, this fawning picture over um, what they, how wonderful they were and, and you know, disregarding some of the deeper, tougher questions that have to be asked. But instead, it's really kind of picking it apart. But in the, in the process of picking apart the truth, uh, you tend to learn a little bit about you, Eric. So I think that's, that's fascinating. What, what kind of brought you to thinking about a biography of Hartman specifically in that way? Well, that, that's an idea that's, that's shown up for me uh, in reading history my whole life. Uh, as a as a kid and, and as an adult, but you know one one thing that one of the one of the things that really hit me over the head once I started going into Hartman's life and reading what there was about him is this idea that history has always been handled by someone before it gets to us, right? So someone else has already been in charge of the storytelling. Usually, they've made decisions about how the conversations conducted. Uh, what to include, what not to include, and who gets to tell the story, who has the power and the trust to tell the story, right? And so uh, the, the way that we conduct this conversation, I think, really does tell us about that, that context, the, 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 the author uh, and the nature of the conversation, just like it tells us about the, the subject. 
Well, we always tend to give it lip service and we say victors write the history. But I think in this case, we end up looking at, at an interesting situation that we'll explore as we talk through it in the podcast tonight, where, yes, the victors wrote the history, but it was a glowing history rather than a damning history. And so you end up having to analyze what are the motivations, what are the the reasons for these things being written and either topics not addressed, uncomfortable questions not asked, uh, or or other uh, a deeper historical exploration not being done. And to me, that's almost as fascinating, if not more fascinating than the actual biography of the individual. So, I, you know, I, I think I think you probably will say that uh, that there was a lot of motivation there to, to shine a light in places that hadn't been, um, but also to do something different. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that that was kind of what grabbed my interest uh, once I started doing the work. I mean, I, I I started the book because I'm obsessed with aviation and have been all my life, but I I finished it because it taught me so many things that I did not expect to learn and I couldn't stop. Let's talk about your formative exposures to aviation because once again, people may say. Who is this Eric Schmidt? What does he know about aviation? Why has he taken on, you know, either praising or poking in the eye, the guy that has 352 plus kills? Well, nerd is, is my main job title when it comes to, to aviation. I mean, I, I've, I've been into it my whole life. You know, I, I grew up wanting to be an aeronautical engineer, you know, uh, precisely until the time when I hit college physics and calculus at, at, at which point See, you're much I, smarter than much smarter than brett brett well, what was your major <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, was, I was i was the guy that went to Embry riddle for engineering and and uh went in the army <laughs> well the, <laughs> so you the, see, it didn't work out for him either <laughs> the 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 last part of that path though was going to be until i immediately retreated to the humanities uh because i i knew that you know the engineering path uh, wasn't what i was going to be able to be doing for eight hours a day uh, but, uh, so I, you know, I mean, in college, I ended up majoring in philosophy and history, uh, which actually was a wonderful choice for me and, and you know, it worked out great. And, and I was, I was fortunate that I was in a college where you can make a change like that, uh, and kind of figure out yourself and what you need to do, uh, along the way. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think about the very beginning when I was just a kid, I mean, I think I started out being obsessed with space, you know, real space, you know, Gemini, Apollo, the, the, the moon missions and all that. And then it was uh, undersea exploration with submersibles going and, and discovering the Titanic. You know, it was always kind of a, from a sort of scientific exploratory point of view. And then I landed on aviation and it just, it stuck. You know, I mean, to me, the field of aviation is, is just this, it's this container of the whole human experience, right? I mean, you can see successes, failures, heroes, villains, awesome decision-making, horrible decision-making, comically horrible decision-making, like the, the, the whole lot, you know, you can, you can find just about any kind of story you want in aviation. And, and uh, it's always just kind of had a, a gravitational pull on me. So with a background in, in touching aviation, and, and I laugh that uh, you kind of went through some of the similar progressions I did. Uh, you know, obviously, I, I spent a lot of my time growing up around Huntsville, Alabama, so I was brainwashed into space at, a, at an early age. <laughs> uh, <laughs> moved on from that, realizing that I didn't want to be a physicist, much less an astrophysicist. Uh, and, there you uh, go. And, and then doing, you know, oceanographic things. Uh, so uh, I 
I tell the story of I wanted to be an ocean engineer until I said in the in brief for ocean engineering, and they said the first two years of mechanical engineering, and I walked out the door and said, "Where was oceanography again? Where, where are the fish and rocks?" <laughs> so, so I have fled from uh, from engineering much as you have, but coming from those backgrounds and and then doing aviation things for the majority of my uh, of my military career. It's it's interesting to see somebody else who has been bitten by the aviation bug, um, but thankfully you didn't get the fatal variety like I did that, <laughs> that led you down a you know a career in a in a very uh, you know pigeonholed fashion to doing some certain things. Uh, you obviously had the ability uh, as you went through a variety of of academia uh, to to change your course, and then I, I find it funny um, how you have gone from such that kind of a background to where you find yourself. Uh, working today, not in a field as an academic professor or anything, but as a writer uh, who also does work uh, in business. Um, but but let's talk about how, you know, how did an advisor's question kind of turn into a biographical exercise for Eric Hartman? How, how did you end up kind of I don't want to say getting shamed into writing about Eric Hartman, but that's almost the way you make it sound in your book. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the the advisor you're talking about was was in grad school. And this was sort of a, a fork in the road for me where uh, I was in grad school for writing uh, and I was having to decide because the, the program I was in was creative nonfiction, which sounds kind of like a contradiction, but it's, it's not, I promise. Uh, and the decision that I had to make, most people in a program like that are actually there because they want to write memoir. They want to write about their life, right? But I wasn't really into that. I, I wanted to write research-based nonfiction about other real things out in the world uh, that can teach us things. And, and so this advisor, you know, she, she asked me at one point uh, when we were planning the semester, you know, what are you, you going to write about, Schmidt? And I said, baseball or airplanes? And now there, there's two opposite ends of the spectrum. Well, right. And, and, <laughs> well, wait, no, they both have big egos. They have big egos involved and lots <laughs> true, of money. True. So. <laughs> you can connect the dots, I'm, I'm sure, in, in, in a few ways. But, but, you know, she looked at me as, as puzzled as you think that she might. And, and, baseball would have been the memoir route because I mean I, I played baseball all my life I played in college you know it was a huge part of my you know formative years and, and I figured well I could I could dredge up some some semi-useful stories and, and talk about that uh, but what I really wanted to do was was talk about aviation and, and go into history and, and really make it a, a formal part of of that graduate experience to, to really dive in and, and learn research and, and learn how to, to, to research hard, tangible things and then interpret and analyze and present them as a writer, uh, you know, using all the tools that I could put together to, to do that. And so what she said immediately after that was, okay, tell me about three pilots you know of, because, you know, I think she could tell that the stories are with the people, uh, you know, as, as much as I might want to write about how amazing the, the landing gear retraction mechanism on a MiG-23 is. Th that's uh, a, apparently about all that all the grognards we deal with. We, they don't, <laughs> well, <laughs> they I just mean, want to tell us how wonderful the airplanes are. And people actually fly these things? Yeah. We, 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 we can relate. I mean, I, you know, I spent many an hour on YouTube looking at, you know, landing gear sequences and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but I, I, I listed off, I think it, it, was, um, it was Chuck Yeager, Amelia Earhart, and Eric Hartman. And Harmon was the guy I knew the least about, uh, and she didn't know anything about him. Uh, but he was also, I mean, he was immediately the most promising one and the most interesting one of, of, of the group. I think partly because he was so unknown uh, to, to both of us. I, I, I knew 
his basic background. I, I knew kind of the, the encyclopedia version of him. Uh, but, you know, we got talking about the black tulip, the, the, the symbol that he had on his plane at, at, at certain points during the war. And then later, you know, in, in what became West Germany when he was in the Bundeswehr, the, the, um, the new German military, uh, you know, he had those painted on his, his, uh, his sabers, uh, actually. And that just kind of, I, I could read her interest in it. And that we just sort of, you know, fed into this, this research project. So I, I kind of got into it in grad school. Uh, and then after I was done, enough people around me were like, you know, look, you know, th this is a book you should consider keeping going on it. And so then after I was done, I, uh, I started writing Black Tulip. Well, I, I have to let you know what a charmed life you have lived, and you may not realize it. But for those of us like me that spent a career in military aviation, I have had Hartman, Galland, Belkey, all beat into my brain from an early age. <laughs> <laughs> so it must have been pleasant for you to discover Eric Hartman. Uh, unfortunately, since day one of my military flying career, <laughs> uh, you know, Hartman and, and so many of these aces are um, in a sense, beat into you. And, and, and Brett can probably say from the Ranger side, there's, there's very much a ground equivalent that we often laugh about old dead German sayings. And so if there's any saying that's painted on the wall over a, uh, over a command center, over a squadron ready room or something, there's better than even chance it applied. It was given by an old dead German. Um, but that's just how post-war American military theory has been done. Um, that so much of it uh, has been driven by digging up what many of the German aces, the German generals, uh, and others said, because if you're going to write a quote from Montgomery over the top of your command center, is it going to be, I've got no idea what I'm doing? <laughs> <laughs> that was to piss off all my UK listeners. So sorry, tough luck. I didn't like Montgomery. Anyway, so uh, to go on, I'm, I'm going to once again use your own words against you here, because I think it's a great, it's a great quote um, about the book itself. And you say, Black Tulip is not an expose, but a declaration of who Hartman was. It's not a hero building exercise, but also not a condemnation. What the real story is, we will never fully know. His life is hard to solve. And that's that's kind of where I want to start this discussion tonight, um, is that I, I don't want us to let ourselves get polarized, because it's very easy to read what someone else writes and to either take offense to it or to say, but wait, you forgot, you know, or do any one of those things. I want us to, to take a look at the book, realizing that there's a lot of uncomfortable piece to it, but it's, it's not an expose. It's not meant there to show something that is creating drama. It's meant to explore who he really was rather than, as you have said, and, and I know many of us feel, uh, his previous history has been sculpted. It's It's been handed to us by people who may have had ulterior motives, some good, some bad, um, but but rather a uh, an attempt to not tell the whole story because the whole story might not have been palatable. It might have been a little uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean that that was that, that was my my goal from the beginning was to try to kind of tread the middle ground, right? I mean, because I mean it can be just as shallow to swing that pendulum the other direction and try to make him into some you know dastardly. Uh, Nazi and, and not talk about any of the context or the complexity or, or anything like that, right? And, and so in a way, I actually, I kind of wanted to remove a little bit of the adrenaline from the story and just sort of sit with what we had and um, just kind of r resist this temptation toward 
a really neat, tidy black and white conclusion in either direction, uh, and 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 try to try to give it a, another look and just kind of see where it where it took us. You know, it, it, I'm sort of thinking now about why I picked Hartman uh, back in school to as a subject, and and I think it had something to do with. You know, I, I, I knew of him, I knew, you know, his claim to fame, I knew a heck of a lot more about the BF-109 and, and you know, all these sort of mileposts in his life. But in, in the beginning, I didn't have an especially strong opinion about him in either direction, right? And, and so I, I think what that told me in some sort of way was, you know, this was going to be a chance for me to go into the history and let the history show me what I ought to think, rather than going in with uh, a preconceived notion that I'm just trying to validate. Uh, and, and so that was kind of the, the exercise for my own sake as a writer that, that I thought this could be really useful for. And in, in the end, that was validated. I mean, that, that, was, that was how it turned out, that you know, the, the polarized black and white, heavy-handed declaration about you know, Eric Hartman as a man uh, was was not in, in in either direction was was not what I, I thought would be uh, the right way to go. Well, before we kind of break down the phases of the book, I, I want to throw it over to Brett for a moment because I think it's interesting how people will read through the book and and know what the purpose of your writing is. Yet it's interesting how how we focus on different things and we we put uh, concern or we. I don't want to say we take offense, but we we there are certain words that are more of a hot button for us in, in certain ways. Uh, Brett, hearing what what Eric has said, how does that change? You know, kind of the discussion we had earlier today about um, what things were emphasized, maybe overemphasized or underemphasized in your mind. Well, I mean, I was telling I was telling Doug earlier. I was you know I didn't read go into the book knowing what to expect, and I hadn't read a lot of history on any of the aces, much less. Hartman and um, I guess I was just assuming it was going to be sort of a uh, expose of his experiences in combat, and it was a lot deeper than that, right? It was a, it was more of a discussion about who he was as a man, and I appreciated that, and I learned some things too. And uh, one of the things I think you you point out that I was unaware of is that uh, some of the previous history that's written, uh, you know, is told from a, a lens that might be uh, inappropriately. Uh, too generous. Uh, not to say that you discovered anything about Hartman that made him out to be, you know, some vile character or anything like that. But um, anyway, I, I, I think that uh, you've explained that, you know, like you said, you weren't trying to uh, characterize him on really any end of the spectrum. And, and I can see how in, in after reading your book, you seem to explore, you know, what you discovered about the man. Well, that's what kind of fascinated me uh, going through the phases. So, so I'll I will spoil it for the readers in a sense to say if you expect to jump straight into hearing dogfight stories about Eric Hartman, this is not your book. <laughs> you should go read a different one. <laughs> <laughs> Am I pretty right in saying that, Eric? Well, I mean, the the Red Baron shows up pretty quick, but uh, but yes, I, I did you know, laugh th about that. I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> am I did I pick up the wrong book and read the wrong PDF? How am I suddenly <laughs> reading about the Red Baron? So so I thought that was funny, but that but once again, the the reason that's in there is 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 if I break your book down into in a sense five different phases, which is probably not how you saw it, but 
tough luck. It's my podcast. It's how I saw it. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I want to hear you, how you, you do it. Yeah. You, you really talked a lot about the formative. And because of that, that's why the Red Baron story is extremely applicable, because not only is that importantly formative for the Luftwaffe as a whole, it's informative or it's formative to the the narration of a hero story by the opponent. Um, and I think that is something that we rarely analyze. We do a lot of it. I know Brett has a has a has a landmine of a question for you later on uh, talking about uh, Axis aces and, and just you know sometimes we hero worship them sometimes we just never talk about them um, but anyway so so the first phase is kind of the formative then you do talk about the wartime service you, you spend a while talking about his, his time in captivity which I think is is vitally important to any discussion of his biography mm-hmm. you 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 talk about as I call it the post war reinvention. Uh, which all of us tend to do in some form or other. <laughs> Post your regular career, you have to get a real job. Uh, but the, <laughs> that reinvention, and then you really go into some pretty heavy analysis in in my mind, and some some uh, I will shallowly call them deep thoughts. Um, but you ask some <laughs> tough questions, and, and I think those are the kind of things that I found that part of the book the most excruciating to read. But not because it was poorly written; it was excruciating because I had to stop and think and. That's not something most history books do to you. Most biographies do not do that. But I thought it was very interesting that you had finished telling the story of the individual's life and you said, but wait, there's more. <laughs> We're not done talking yet. <laughs> so t- tell us a little bit about how, how you saw that, the, the phasing of the book in your mind. Well, I, I, I hope the payoff was worth it there, uh, you know, at, at the end. I, um... I did. I, I enjoyed the book. So don't get me wrong. It, it, most of my time was spent digesting the last, I think it's two chapters. Um, it was painful. I had to go back. I had to reread. I wanted to make sure I wasn't misrepresenting. But yes, it, it was It was not a easy read. It was a pleasurable read. And those are two different things. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, well, I mean, your, your breakdown makes uh, plenty of sense to me. That's how it kind of existed in my, my, in my brain when I was doing it. Although the, the thing that comes to mind is that there's actually a phase zero or, or a different phase one. Uh, and, and that really, at least in my mind, and that's the introduction where... I'm really kind of trying to, to have a discussion with the reader and, and say, okay, you know, here's the deal. Here's who I am. Uh, here's, here's what's going on here. Here's what this book is not, uh, you know, and, and, and here's what we can, here, here's our mission as we kind of go and, and learn together uh, through it. And, you know, the, the introduction and the conclusion with very few exceptions, those are the only places where the word I shows up in the book, right? Which, and, thankfully, and it was the only place you explained things <laughs> to me, which was nice. I, I, sure. I didn't feel like I was being uh, author-splained to throughout the entire book. <laughs> oh, good, good, yeah. I mean, preaching is is, is not my chosen vocation, vocation so I, I, <laughs> exactly. I hope to, to avoid that as much as I can. Uh, although, you know, like all of us, I'm, I'm, I'm prone to it sometimes. Um, well, but, but I will say, I, th- I think your introduction was key in that it set the stage. Uh, what I will say is that I, I read it and I'm like, oh, excellent, so, so I should show up to this wearing my big boy pants. I should, <laughs> I should, I should not show up this with, uh, with the, you know, my emotions on my sleeve, which I, I think is probably good for most readers because you just, you don't know your, your reader's background. You don't know how open they are. They may have literally picked up the book thinking they were going to read, uh, 352 dogfight stories, uh, which it is not. Um, so I, I, th- I think you did a good, good job there. in as you call it your phase zero kind of, kind of setting the expectations. Yeah, I, I, th- I think you're right, and, and I think some readers have had that experience, you know, where, uh, I mean, Black Tulip is, is sort of, 
it, it's a it's a half step off from a lot of other works that you know that I would read in in the the aviation history uh, kind of section. And so I, I figured, well, if I have this different kind of project, then especially if uh, if one of my central claims is that every work of history tells you about the author just as it tells you about the subject, well then I, I, I tell you about myself. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, uh, you know, if I'm going to make that, that claim, then I shouldn't just magically exempt myself from it. Right. I, I should, I should hold myself to my own test. Right. And so that was, um, I, I wanted to be pretty intentional both in sort of setting that expectation and defining that. Uh, but then also briefly coming back to it at the very end to sort of say like, okay, what happened? You know, uh, where, 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 where are we at? Well, well, thank you for putting it that way, because that's about how I felt when I got to the end. And we'll talk about that here in a second. <laughs> but but for at least for me, uh, and I'll be honest, the the first phase to me, the formative phase, was really the most interesting. And, and I think that comes from who some of my closest friends are that are either descendants of Holocaust survivors or one of my good friends who actually has a degree in Holocaust studies. Um, and Holocaust yeah. and genocide studies, and so so it was really fascinating to me because with with these this group of friends, we've had so many discussions um, between history, between current world um, events, whether it's things going on in Asia with ethnic cleansing, um, you know, conflicts I've found myself in in Europe with ethnic cleansing, things like that, uh, where where we have a discussion about collective guilt and and the collective. Uh, ability of people to either maintain an identity while unfortunately achieving the uh, the aims of, of whatever organization is attempting to, to do whatever dastardly deeds. Uh, it's it's one of those yeah. really interesting discussions and, and I thought it was it was interesting how much it resonated with me when you discussed the public and private lives of German citizens because it harkened back to my childhood and obviously growing up, for my my teenage years on in Huntsville, Alabama, yes, I had lots of friends who were descended from German rocket scientists, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that sure. was a fascinating cultural thing to grow up in. You know, um, Mr. Redneck Boy from Alabama who was barely wearing shoes, growing up with the sons and grandsons and granddaughters of German rocket scientists. Uh, but but I think you're absolutely right there because you discuss how there was an entire private discourse that I was fortunate enough to witness in a few ethnically German families that I know I didn't see in many of them because they were very much status quo kind of people on the outside um, and not at all on the inside. So, so was that, was that kind of a surprise to you as you, you dug through and talked to more people about, about the German citizen, citizenry during that time? Well, it was, it was, it was one idea that kind of unlocked things for me a little bit, you know, cause sometimes we, we, we tend to kind of talk about, the Germans or, or the ordinary Germans as a herd, right? You know, as, as if yes, they were we do of, a lot of time, you know, pretty much the same. And they were either all complicit and evil or they were all, uh, you know, um, innocent and separated. Right. And it just seemed to me that there, there must be more complexity there than that. Right. And, and even, even person to person, right. So the, the public private distinction you mentioned, was actually deliberate on the part of the Nazis to allow for that, um, you know, to, to, to leave room for a sense of routine and normalcy on sort of the family level, uh, you know, but, but even I think of, of individual people, you know, Hartman or, or anybody else. I mean, you, you have to think that 
not only did individuals vary in, in how they interacted with all of this and, and, and dealt with, I mean, basically the trauma of the time, but individuals themselves would have evolved over time in how they thought about it and engaged with it and conducted themselves in public versus private. So there, there's, there seems just, the, the, there seemed to be so much more fluidity and kind of granular complexity to, to how this worked among the Germans than we really think about very often. So, so that, was, that was one kind of research milestone that, that helped it all sit in my brain where I could think, okay, yeah, th this as a system, this as a phenomenon could like, you know, hold together, I guess. Well, I think there's a, uh, there's a discussion that you actually have later on in the book about, we tend to view anyone's viewpoint from let's say 1935 to 1945 as never changing and never evolving. And you say that's, that's obviously not gonna be true. We, we all right. change and evolve over time, but we tend to, in the discussion about the rise and and the you know flow of the Nazi party that we assume what people believed on day one is what they believed at the end of the fall of the Reich and that either nobody became disillusioned, nobody became aware of what was going on. And and I was even reading it today as I was I was uh, reading some comments uh, from a, a variety of German pharmaceutical companies because you know one of my favorite and I'll, I'll be honest it's called a conspiracy theory because it is um but one of the, the interesting <laughs> discussions is about the the flow of german pharmaceutical money through swiss banks back to the u.s and then back from the u.s after the post-war back into um into german holdings and and some discussions about that and it's and it's just fascinating though to go back and, and do the analysis and say okay who who cares where the money went and whether it was actually transferred let's look who the people were and let's look at you know, were these people that probably, you know, obviously backed as industrialists the rise of the Nazi party, you know, we can't assume they had the same feeling in 1943 when they suddenly realized what was going on and said, do we ride this out? Do we undermine the regime? What do we do? And, and I think you do a good job, especially in the analysis section, coming back and saying, hey, people's attitudes obviously changed. People may have even said and done things and signed up for things early on that they may not have believed even a year later. Yeah, it's true, you know, and, and, and I, I had a conversation with um, a guy who, who shows in the, up in the book, his name is Rudy Florian, and, and he's, you know, he, he's been a, a Holocaust educator his whole life. He, he was a kid in Hitler Youth, uh, briefly kind of got out of being in it too much, and then he emigrated to the U.S. and spent 30 years in the U.S. Air Force, uh, you know, before he became an educator. And... You know, I, I was sitting down with him, and I and I asked him at one point, you know, what what would you, if Eric Hartman were sitting next to us at this table having a beer with us, what would you want to know, or what what would you ask him? And his response was, you know, I, I would want to know how you know how what 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 he has learned and how he has changed over the years. I mean, that 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 was where his interest was. You know, so he was just sort of. He was aware of just what you're you're talking about, where people's lives are fluid and, and and their ideas are fluid, and hopefully, you know, you can establish a trajectory. Uh, you know, I, I think is where he was kind of kind of going with it. But yeah, you you have to be able to to hold that complexity. Um, if I, I I think if you want to view people as full humans. Well, and and I think we'll talk about it here stepping into the second phase. There's there's a move from 
discussing Hartmann probably in the terms that he would like to be thought of as a loyal German citizen, you know, signing up and doing all those good aviation things that his mother would have directed him to do and, and building him into be that, that young youth that the German country would have been proud of. And then you end up in wartime service. And um, I guess I should say thank you for not filling it full of uh, stories of, you know, aces being aces. I think you do a, a good job <laughs> of discussing the aviation things there. But I think it goes to the one of the questions that, that Brett has kind of posed is, you know, wasn't Eric Hartman kind of the poster child for what the Luftwaffe wanted, you know, and and as he finds himself all of a sudden in service on the Eastern Front, is he realizing this is not what I signed up for? This is not flying gliders. I mean, he, he definitely was, you know, he had, um, you know, the, um, the, the insulation of, of his, you know, racial and religious identity. He was really what, uh, he was really well suited for the kind of the, the, the path, you know, into the, the Hitler youth and the training and, and the, the gliding and then eventually the, the Luftwaffe, you know, and um, I mean, he had, it helped, for example, that his, his mother was a pilot, right? I mean, she was a very accomplished pilot in a, a time and a context where women pilots were, were, were few and far between. And so there, there are plenty of reasons why it made sense for him uh, to have the, the path that he did, uh, you know, as, as a, a glider student and then a leader and, and you know, going to the Air Force. Um, you know, but you know, one of, the, one of the, the most devastating and, and sad and strategic things that the Nazis did was they, they created boyhood and girlhood you know they they created the this experience of youth and this this trajectory uh you know because they they needed they needed the young people well and brett uh you know what are your thoughts on that because i know like you like we talked about there's there's a moment where you feel bad for hartman because he's kind of the poster child for it and he's he's almost like he's disposed to do this job yeah i think eric touches on that in the book about how I don't know how you put it exactly, but how, you know, the, the regime was churning their citizenry into this effort and were consuming the children of this, of the nation to, uh, to, you know, to feed into this thing. And he's, he's like the prime candidate for this whole effort. Right. I mean, it's, as I, as I'm reading it, I, I was saying, I was thinking how he was, you know, he was athletic, he was, you know, handsome, his, you know, he was a skilled glider pilot, you know, he just was ticking off all the all the check boxes to be just a prime candidate. And, and by, I guess by your own research, you know, it seemed he was, he was uh, rising through the ranks in the uh, uh, Hitler youth. So he was, he was certainly on that trajectory to be a, a rising star. Should he survive uh, in the Luftwaffe? Yeah. I mean, he, he was, he, he was good at a lot of things that were rewarded, you know, programmatically, like in, in terms of the structure and, and, and how they set it all up, you know, there, there's sort of, uh, one thing that I was interested by was the, just, just this focus on, um, you know, athletics and, and the, the physical and, you know, the um, kind of the, the outward uh, qualities as opposed to braininess and, uh, you know, intellectual development and all that. I mean, th th that, that was, that was de-emphasized, that, that was, you know, in, in fact, smothered in a lot of ways, uh, you know, but man, I mean, you know, Hartman, barreling off ski jumps and, uh, you know, just being, having the talents that he did just naturally out of the gate, uh, you know, that, that made him pretty well suited and, and desirable for, you know, for kind of cultivation, uh, you know, by the people who are in charge. 
Well, I think this is where it starts, at least for me, to have a feeling of discomfort. And it's not quite totally uncomfortable yet, but it's it's one of those moments where my mind kind of races ahead a little bit and I start making historical connections. And I know I'm going to receive hate mail and comments and everything else for this, and I will be the first to say I am a huge supporter of scouting. However, scouting is a paramilitary organization. <laughs> and and we have a lot of those vestiges still in the United States where we have organizations that were designed to sculpt the youth of a nation for service and to imbue a nation's values in them, whether they're the same values that we have today. Let's not have that's, – that's not the discussion. The purpose of these things was to sculpt the future of a youth, and that was very much a 1930s, 1940s way of viewing the world. Um, and, and I think for me, this was the first point to go, let me step back and look as an American and say, you know, what things have we done that have either driven choices in my own life or, or driven choices in the life of my friends um, that are because of organizations that ostensibly had a national purpose, uh, whether or not they had also, you know, great things about camaraderie and, and learning about yourself, learning about your, how you behave in difficult situations. I, I think people could even say from some of the um, the Volks marches and things, they the people learned about themselves. They didn't necessarily need to learn about what Hitler and everybody else was doing for them. <laughs> Yeah, you know that, that that was that was interesting to to me too. I mean, I've um, what what came to my mind when I was kind of going through that phase was that there, there seems to be kind of two components to this, where there's sort of the, the there's sort of the philosophy to organizations like that, and then there's the the practice, right? And and um, absolutely. absolutely, you know the the practice I think was at least as important as anything uh, for, for Hartman and all the other youngsters because, you know, th th they, were, they were out on these, these hikes. They were out, uh, you know, really building this sense of kind of codependency and, and, and camaraderie and connection. And, and th this is in, during a social and political time when, I mean, th this is, you know, the, the interwar period and then before uh, the war where, you know, Weimar had failed, things were not good. The young people often often had sort of these gaping holes in their their life experience uh, of of leadership and camaraderie and, and sort of a sense of you know connectivity uh, to uh, uh, to mentors and things like that and and, and so um, you know the the practices and, and the the excursions the physical element all of this uh, I mean it, it it filled a need for people especially in that specific uh, time and, and place. Well. And historians will tell you, and unfortunately, I remember this from all my martial heritage classes and all those other things, that you know the, the Germanic history has so much been that history of collective doing and that it's, it's a tribal history in a lot of ways, but the larger the, the German leaders could make the tribe, the more powerful they could make the nation. And that nationhood wasn't necessarily a thought that entered into everyone's mind. But if you could have shared experiences, then your tribe became larger than just the people who lived in the village with you. And so it's an interesting manipulation of you know, inherently Germanic traits. Um, but at the same time, I think you do a, a great job discussing you know, that there are benefits to that that then stood Hartman in good stead further on in his life. And as you go into his wartime service, I do laugh that I, I think you start the 
that section off talking about all the things he got wrong, uh, which is fascinating because I never even knew about the Stuka crash. So I, I laugh about that one, you know, congratulations, <laughs> put the young guy out over his skis and give him an airplane he's not qualified in to fly. Uh, but but the uh, it was it was interesting to me to read how you started that. And it was it was very much um, not trying to paint a picture of a perfect aviator. It was this is a young aviator finding himself partway through the war that is now being asked to do things uh, well outside of his skill level. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. I mean, that that that, that wasn't a, a way to sort of, you know, say, hey, hey, everybody, Hartman screwed up too. Uh, th- th- what, what actually comes to my mind there is Hartman talked about himself differently than his supporters talked about him, right? He was more willing to be kind of, uh, you know, uh, to show, to show his, his flaws or, or, or to, you know, talk about. He seems more self self-deprecating as, as aviators either can kind of fall in one of two camps. They either never made a mistake or they love to tell you their mistakes and go, I was an absolute moron. <laughs> and, he, and he seems more of the latter in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, he, he would, he was a, a pretty blunt kind of character. Uh, you know, he wasn't, he didn't say a whole lot in public, but, uh, you know, when he got talking about things, he, he told them how they, they were. And, you know, I, I think if, if, you know, if, if he was in a conversation with someone about those early days, you know, he would talk about how, you know, he, uh, you know, damn near shot himself down or, or literally did shoot himself down, uh, you know, sometimes by flying through the shrapnel of, of these other planes and his, his first foibles, you know, out there on the front trying to get his footing. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's almost, it, it's only after the fact when you get sort of back to that, that historical storytelling and that filtering that other people did on his behalf that you really get the spit polished, uh, you know, super infallible, heroic kind of, kind of vibe. Which is fascinating because I, while obviously, as I've said, coming from a military history background and military aviation, know Hartman for his large number of kills. I too also know Hartman for his lesson of running out of gas on on that first fight. And oh yeah, yeah. And 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 that has always been kind of something that that was interesting as I read this book was I realized that not everybody may have been instructed in the I'll call it the mythology of Eric Hartman, <laughs> the same way that I had been. And that one of the first lessons that I remember drawing from, from Hartman's sayings, his life, whatever that, that was beaten to me as a young aviator, was that you absolutely have to have situational awareness of where you are in the battlefield, what your aircraft fuel state is, and never get yourself out over your skis into a fight you can't get out of. Um, and it was specifically taken from that one story. So it was it was interesting that to me that is a key part of Hartman, and I suddenly realized that that might not be a key part of everyone else's view of Eric Hartman. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean that, that's a very human story, right? I mean because you know here he was, he came in from from training, and then all of a sudden he was at the front, and the first time he was surrounded, uh, you know, by enemy fighters, uh, you know, he sort of got tunnel vision and lo- lost track of that important priority, right? And uh, that's the sort of thing where, you know, I, I don't think of that as a way to be, you know, to think, oh, well, you know, Eric Hartman wasn't as good as, as people think he, he was. Um, that, that makes him feel more human to me. And, and, and that's kind of, 
that's relatable, right? Because, you know, we've all been in situations where, you know, man, we're, we're prepared for the job interview or whatever. And then we get there and, you know, we've got dry mouth like you wouldn't believe. And, uh, you know, we completely lose sight of, of one of our priorities or whatever. You know, I mean, uh, to me, that was a humanizing story. Uh, that uh, I, it actually was pretty formative for him because I think he very seriously took a lesson from that and he learned from it um, and he got a real talking to about it and uh, you know that we all know that he succeeded at that. Well, so I I kind of chuckle because I I for many years took from Eric Hartman the fact that the best instructors are the ones that tell their worst mistakes first. <laughs> and and for years yeah, I would sure. relate to people how you know my combat record was in my first combat experiences I was zero for two two missions in in Serbia and missed the target both times um, and and that there was all of those lessons learned that came from missing the target on two combat missions rolled into my next combat experiences and were things that I would never make those mistakes again and think procedures I would do things that I would um, would uh, check before the flight to ensure I didn't make those mistakes again, because those were embarrassing. And those, those were the red flags that I would tell the young guys, look, don't be a dumb, don't be a dumbass like Doug. <laughs> Doug screwed it away. <laughs> Learn from his mistakes. Yeah, right, right. And, and so I, I think that's, that's part of, to me, the, the Hartman um, mythos was that he was so accomplished, yet he had such an inauspicious start, um, which I think, I, I think is, uh, is definitely something to talk about. Now I know Brett, obviously being our resident ground pounder, um, seeing things from a different perspective. Brett, what did you take away from his wartime service, specifically when he was shot down and spent time uh, around the infantry? Oh, yeah. And we just talking about a human story. I really thought it was, you know, superhuman, just how he was appalled to see the combat up close. I mean, it, what, what I recall from the story was how, you know, essentially they killed like 200 Soviet dismounts to a man, you know, dismembered them with their machine guns and stuff, just in the brutality of the of the ambush or whatever it was. And then as soon as it was all over, they stopped and started eating lunch. And it, it just, I wonder like how that affected him as a man. And, and, and the whole story seems to kind of reinforce this notion we have of like the gallant aerial knights and how it's all chivalrous and, you know, it's certainly distant in some regard, uh, perhaps from combat in a more like, face-to-face -face kind of sense, but I guess he got to see it right there. It was interesting. And, you know, it was just a, a brief snapshot of that, I guess, experience in the book. I, I, it was one of those things where I think if I had a chance to talk with him, I, I'd like to know more about how that affected him and if it did, if it affected him or anything like that. Yeah, well, I, I think you're, you're right on. I mean, he, the, the, there is sort of a, a distance, uh, you know, that, that I think maybe wasn't um, something that he had really reckoned with in, in, in that kind of way, you know, when, when he was down on the ground. And, and this, wasn't, this was an SS unit, too. So uh, there was sort of an added element of, of, I think, that he saw, you know, some of the just sort of outright brutality uh, that those units are known for. And, you know, he said something after the fact like, you know, th th I thought that th this was a different kind of human, you know. And he was talking about, you know, his, his countrymen, th that they... Sort of approach it, approached it, you know, from this sort of ruthless tactical uh, point of view, and and I think he asked them like, you know, why why didn't you take any prisoners, uh, you know, like like, and and they said, well, it, it would have taken resources, and you know, or, or you know, made us vulnerable, or or something else. I mean, the 
the, the point, I think, was that it, it, it was kind of a, a jarring experience for him based on kind of the, the norms of his realm of combat, uh, you know, versus what he found when he was, uh, when he was shot down there. I think that's a very important frame of reference, especially for aviators to have. And I think it's very easy for people to view aviation as surgical, especially in the modern era. Where, where you're so removed from much of the, the damage you're doing, the weapons are more precise, uh, which also means they also more precisely kill the wrong people, <laughs> unfortunately at times. But the, the fact is aviation, aviators and aviation tend to be removed sometimes from the effects they have. And for me, as a Marine aviator who was at least also fortunate enough to be a forward air controller and serve with the infantry for 13 months, it's interesting to see how that changes people. Because what I'll say is, at least in my experience, it was a fascinating difference to, rather than it be striking targets from 25,000 feet, to being the individual calling in the airstrikes on the targets and then going through and exploiting what was left of the target area you had hit. And and I think that's a it's a jarring experience for someone if they did sign up truly to believe in the knights of the air and and the uh, chivalrous gallantry of of warfare, and then suddenly you're down in the world of the infantry, where it really is not that way at all. Um, and, and I think so. I think you did a good a good job talking through that. But I think that's one of those things that will always be an unanswered question: is you know how did that really affect Hartman? And did did was that the beginning of the um, disillusionment for him, or was it? Did he just kind of? flip the switch and say, yes, this is a war. We're, we're doing unsavory things. And, uh, and I saw some pretty horrific actions, uh, on the part of the SF. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to say, you know, you were, we're kind of just left wondering about it. I think, um, kind of conjecturing. I mean, he, he should, he did show a pattern throughout the war of always wanting to go back to his unit. Right. I mean, he, he had a chance at one point to go, uh, fly the ME-262, uh, and, you know, be sort of one of the initial cohort to, to check out the plane and, and, and um, go to combat with it. And he didn't want it. He didn't want any part of it. He, he left. He went back to, to fly his 109 with, with his unit. Um, so I, I think that he really did develop sort of a, um, an allegiance or a fondness or a comfort or, or a, a, a something uh, that really kind of drew him back to the familiar, to, to what he had really bonded to. And uh, that was probably where he thought he could be effective and, and you know, where, where he, he felt more most in command of, of his role and, and what he was supposed to do. Right. So let's step forward to that kind of third phase, middle phase of the book, uh, where the Axis surrenders. Uh, he goes into captivity. Obviously, uh, you know, where, where they are at that time, it's, you know, conveniently between they could choose to surrender to the Allies, they could choose to surrender or surrender to the United States, surrender to the Russians. Uh, there's a belief, hey, maybe we can make it to the British sector, uh, surrender to them. And then trying to do the right thing, he and his command all decide uh, to, to surrender in mass and and the questions that kind of come out of that, you know, do you, you know, officers could have escaped to wherever they wanted to. They could have flown uh, to areas that were blatantly U.S. well, well beyond uh, Soviet occupation. But, but he finds himself handed back over, uh, along with a number of other Germans, uh, to the Soviets and to, to some, what I'll say, some fairly brutal handling, 
Um, the the question is always comes up in history is you never want to be the whataboutism kind of people and, and compare uh, horrific actions as if one can be more horrific than the other. Um, but some some terrible things do go on. Uh, Brett, I know I know we talked about Hartman's decision not to fly out and not to to go uh, surrender to the British. I know you had a few questions about that. Well, this is one of the things that really impressed me. I mean, you you touched on it, Eric, that he clearly had some superior bond with this unit because when he got the order saying for him and one of his uh, other pilots, I can't remember who it was, to fly to the British and surrender to themselves there, and they decide to ignore those orders and to try to uh, load up everybody on a ground convoy and and, uh, road march to the nearest U.S. lines. Uh, that didn't work out so well for him. And I, I just kind of wonder, surely he thought about that decision when he was sitting in captivity uh, for 10 years. Did he ever remark on on that decision point, how he felt about it, if he had regrets about it or, or defend, you know, that decision despite the hardships he went through because of it? You know, I, I don't think he would have regretted it. I mean, he, he said that that was the only time during the war that he disobeyed an order. Uh, you know, when they, they, he got explicit instructions, uh, you know, to, to, to leave and go to, you know, what everybody thought would be a safer uh, surrender point, uh, you know, and, and they, they decided uh, not to do that. Um, you know, he, he, after the fact, he, he told, he talked about the time in captivity and how he spent a disproportionate amount of time relative to a lot of other soldiers. Uh, a lot of other Germans. And I always got the sense that, at least in how he presented himself later, you know, after he had returned and after he was having these conversations with biographers and stuff, uh, he, that, that he, he, he felt kind of like it was just sort of what he had to do and um, that he, you know, he wasn't going to spend his time navel-gazing about it and regretting. Uh, you know, maybe he didn't expedite his own release or, or, or anything like that. It, it's it's kind of hard to pin down. It, it, it's, you know, he, he was not uh, forthcoming with, with the feelings uh, in, in a lot of that ways, as, as you might expect. Um, but uh, it's a really interesting question. Yeah, there were, I understand there were other pilots who took some grief from their comrades after, uh, uh, Graf comes to mind, I guess, Herman Graf, I guess, maybe was accused of cutting some deal or otherwise, you know, caving in to his captors and getting himself a much earlier release than others. Did, did uh, he discuss that? Or I think he might've touched on that a bit in the book. Is there any, um, anything that was revealed in your investigations with Hartman on those things? Yeah, that, that was a frustration for him. You know, there, there were some, some guys who, who did, you know, they sort of took the deal and they either gave information or they, uh, you know, uh, agreed or, or sort of manipulated into, um, cooperating more um, than Hartman because I mean the, the thing you take from Hartman's time in captivity is you know cooperative was was not uh, you know a word to describe you know how he treated the the Soviets that who were uh, in charge of him he really stuck to his guns uh, and uh, but they, they were especially these 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 high-ranking officers who the Soviets thought would have some sort of intelligence or, or some kind of utility or propaganda use they were under lots of pressure, and that was mostly psychological. I mean, you know, they definitely had a lot of physical hardship, uh, especially in the beginning when they were kind of moving through the, 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 the camp system, finding, kind of settling into their eventual places. Uh, but th- there was a lot of, of kind of posturing and pressuring and 
baiting and threats and, and all this to get, uh, to get Hartman and, and men like him to, to do things, you know, that, that may, may have been expedient, but, uh, you know, not necessarily what they wanted to. So, so I will say that this was the second most interesting <laughs> part of the book <laughs> to me after, after the, you know, the formative laying the groundwork phase. And it's probably because being a graduate of the U.S. Navy's Survival Ev Evasion Resistance Escape School, I have a very small, very tiny frame of reference for these things, not 10 years in captivity, a much smaller amount with my own countrymen. Um, but it was, it was funny to, for me to sit there and go, Oh, I know exactly the line that they're trying to run him down. I understand exactly the kind of of way they're working him over. And and in my own mind, I could sit there and I could say, and I can absolutely see why these other aviators and these other officers took the parole and went and did it. And it's it's was an interesting kind of sidestep for me to to go out of this discussion of looking at very introspectively negative things about the US military. And suddenly going, oh, thank God we had a code of conduct. Thank God when I, by the time I was in the military, I was trained in what to expect the enemy to do to me in a prisoner of war situation and to understand the implications. Now, obviously, we can have a whole separate historical discussion about were there any um, real repercussions for the officers that took the parole or not. But at the end of the day, it, it reinforced in my mind why there was so much seer training about return with honor. And the fact is that they that they always will teach you. They know they're going to break you. You every every human has a breaking point, but return with your honor. Don't don't willfully give up um, that which which you have control over. So, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it, and it's it's just one of those perspectives you you either have because you've been there, or <laughs> you fortunately may not have experienced it. And it's a wonderful thing. So, uh, you know, as as you discussed that the section about captivity, moving on from that, it, it becomes an interesting discussion in the post-war phase uh, where it becomes really, in, in my mind, a, a dissection of who the post-war history writers were. Now that you do talk about what Hartman did, how he ran afoul of higher command, things he may have said or done that were not, were not taken uh, well or received well. But I, I think the real meat of that section is the breakout into who the movers and shakers were in writing the history. You know, what, what do you want people to kind of walk away from that section with? Well, it was, it was the Germans uh, who were, were trusted with that to a large extent, you know, and, and it was. And should that surprise Americans that, that it wasn't Americans really writing the history? It was Germans writing about their own actions? <laughs> well, I mean, yes and no. On one, sin, on, on one hand, it, it makes sense because, this was the start of the Cold War, and the Germans had just finished fighting the Soviets, right? And so, you know, the, the American leadership really wanted to know, they wanted to extract as much intelligence and as much useful information from that experience, the, the victories and the defeats, uh, as, as possible, because there was a real urgency uh, right away, uh, you know? And, and you know, in, in different parts of the book, I talk about the, the, the quickness of how you know, we, we shifted perspectives where, you know, the Soviets who had been our allies were now, you know, in this sort of sneaky, almost subconscious way, the enemies. And then the Germans who were the vanquished enemy were now the people who we were relating with. And, and, and you know, th there are plenty of reasons for that. 
Um, well, yeah, it's it's now suddenly a very existential threat of mm-hmm. of the Soviets there that hadn't been there to the Americans, and it's a strange and uncomfortable rebalancing of yeah. the moral and and you know value judgments that have been made about people previously. Yeah, I mean, one of the the, the books that I used in in the research was a, a survey of the Cold War, and, and it, it, um, it Gaddis by 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 Gaddis, I think. And um, it starts with a scene of that initial meeting of American and Soviet uh, troops who have, you know, they've 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 closed off. They they've you know they've closed the fronts and they're they're shaking hands, you know, in, in this sort of ceremonial meeting of allies, uh, having defeated Germany. And and the author talks about how you know even at that point, it was all, it was awful awkward, you know, and there was sort of a kind of an unspoken wariness. Uh, because you know the, the the seeds of the Cold War uh, were were planted before you know we w- what we recognize as as the Cold War starting you know after after the war and uh, so it's uh, it's it, it's it's complicated but it but it's it's interesting to see how that stuff's connected. Well, as one of my history professors was often happy to remind me that in the 1940s, children of Soviet Russia were always educated about how American expeditionary forces had invaded them during the Crimean War. <laughs> and so there was there was always a, a long distrust between the two powers that suddenly when a common enemy is gone, I think that uncomfortable pause afterwards uh, when you're shaking hands and realizing, wait a minute, now, now one, only one of the two of us is going to walk out of this next historical contact uh, intact. And that's, that's a, a sobering realization. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, something something was coming. People people realized, I think. Right. Well, you know the the interesting historical parallel for me, uh, one being a, a a history buff and two being a a product of the war in Afghanistan is the same procedures and the same processes that applied in 1950-60 Germany for historical uh, revisionism. I'll call it or. Uh, treating people nicer in history than maybe they should have been, um, you know, happens again. It, it happens when when you have allies of convenience. And I probably will also make some special operations people and friends of mine mad here when I, you know, call out the fact that, uh, you know, Abdul Rashid Dostum, General Dostum, um, an absolutely uh, fascinatingly brutal uh, in all the wrong ways kind of person who suddenly becomes the best friend of the U.S. even after he's been a guy who has fought on the side of the Russians in Afghanistan killing his own countrymen, then fought on the side of his Uzbeks killing other people, uh, and then finally become one of the most trusted advisors of special operations getting into uh, Operation uh, Enduring Freedom to get into Afghanistan. Uh, suddenly you have to rewrite history. And suddenly this individual, even in social media posts from NATO and the US, is this wonderful Afghan general when he's a three-time over traitor to different parts of his people. <laughs> so the, these are lessons we don't learn. These these are lessons we continually repeat. And I think, let's be honest, they've been repeated since the, the dawn of history, um, that uh, when you find the enemy of my enemy, you suddenly make them your friend. Um, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't delve into and at least have a historical honesty about what are these people's backgrounds? What have they done? Um, some people are more repentant about their their previous history. Others are not. And I think you really get into that in in the following section, in the in the analysis section. Um, but for 
for fans of Hartman who don't want to necessarily get to those tough questions yet, I, I think the post-war section is also a fascinating discussion about an individual re-entering aviation. Uh, and, and it was funny to me to read the stories of him flying a cub and going back and doing things that as a fighter pilot were extremely basic to him, but the U.S. Air Force was going to make him do them. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was uh, one of the more interesting phases uh, of, of his career to me is, is just sort of this, the whole reacclimation uh, process, right? I mean, it just he, he was gone for 10 years. He came back, uh, you know, just weighing 100 pounds. West Germany had been created in his absence. I mean, excruciatingly, his wife had given birth to a son while he was in the camps uh, who he never met, and he learned, and, and the son passed away and you know he learned of this god knows how much later right i mean and so he comes back to you know this this west germany that as he described it and as everybody described it you know in in the the massive you know as they called it the economic miracle you know this revival uh, was just this totally different place you know and and he really felt like what am i going to do what am i going to contribute right and and so this was another point in his life where there was strange strangely good timing right because uh when when he came back almost to the month that's when adenauer and the the west germans were rearming right they they were um they were creating a new air force and initially i, I think he was kind of reluctant wasn't sure if that's what he wanted but a lot of the old aces told him, look, you know, this is, this is your best shot at a paycheck and normalcy and doing something that, that, you can, that you can manage, that is familiar to you, that you can contribute at. So yeah, there, there he went, you know, right into the, the new Air Force and, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of go, go, going back a few steps, I think initially, uh, you know, in, in terms of the, the training and, and the expectations and, and uh, jumping through the hoops, but, you know, they, they made him the they put him in charge of the, the first all-jet fighter wing uh, in, uh, in the Bundeswehr, you know, flying uh, American, well, they weren't American, they were Canadair uh, Sabre jets. And so, you know, just a story about timing and, uh, you know, that, that, was, that was his place. And then that's, that's what, he could, what, he, what he could bring after that, that experience. Well, and I think that starts some of the hero worship, at least in the U.S. Air Force, because... You know, as much as I make fun of my Air Force compatriots, one of the things the Air Force is really good at doing is is finding people with experience, collecting their lessons learned, and and discussing on a very personal level with them uh, what what they can take away. And I I have no doubt that when Eric Hartman showed up at Luke Air Force Base and some of these other other locations doing his training, uh, the pilots that surrounded him, even though they were his instructor pilots, were keen to learn you know, what he had to offer and to, to hear the stories and not necessarily to hear them um, in, and and I apologize, I'll make this this delineation between civilians and military, not necessarily to, to hear them in a civilian fanboy way, but to hear them as military pilots. And what did you really do? And really, did you get 352 kills or or how many of those, you know, were, were your wingmen, um, you know, either getting a kill that you then logged or how many could you really validate? You know, and, and I think there probably were a lot of very frank behind the scenes discussions that in a sense only helped Hartman's uh, story be told because people obviously found him relatable. They obviously found him uh, to be a good pilot. And, and it was, it, 
then it, that reputation carries weight, as you say. He gets the first uh, jet wing in the Bundeswehr, uh, which is not a uh, a minor task to be given over to just anybody in the post uh, post war era. Yeah, although there there was there was a scuffle at the beginning, uh, and and uh, you know as his early biographers uh, describe it, you know, sort of a a potentially scandalous uh, debate over over his incoming rank. Uh, you know, because the, the right. records, you know, the records were sort of iffy right at the end of the war. You know, what what he ended at and what sh he should come in as, um, and the, there he he in in a, in a strange kind of way, you know, his his second Air Force career was in some ways harder for him uh, than the first. Right, he he kind of set some traps for himself. Uh, some in, in the act of being correct. Right, I mean, you, you referenced earlier, you know, some things that he did that that kind of uh, you know, uh, rub some other people the wrong way. One of the, 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 the most famous one is him objecting to the West Germans buying the F-104 star, Starfighter uh, as their, their uh, replacement uh, fighter. And, and he was he, correct in predicting that it was, uh, you know, more plain than, than their infrastructure and their training uh, would be able to handle. And there was, you know, there was a uh, a bribery scandal involved in, in, in a lot of those deals. This was a, a, uh, yes, a the very, deal of the century. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th this was a, a very interesting and complicated time on a lot of hands. Um, but uh, you know, I, I I found it kind of another another hu especially human episode to to see him try to navigate uh, the new system. You know, where he was he had this kind of elevated status, and like you say, you know, certainly among the pilots. Uh, you know, this kind of inherent, uh, um, you know, trust in, in his expertise and, and things like that. But it was also a very different organization, uh, very deliberately a different organization. And, uh, you know, over time, uh, I, I think he sort of kind of felt like a, like a relic, uh, you know, from, from some other place. And uh, eventually he, he retired early. Um, I, I don't, exactly know if that was, uh, you know, on sort of unspoken recommendation from, from up above, or if that's just because he, he made the call. But uh, his, his struggles in, in that environment are, uh, are pretty interesting. I think you've really hit the nail on the head as you have a discussion about the Bundeswehr and, and, and how it is formed and how it is created. And it's not built as a cadre of warriors it's almost as if you put accountants in charge of the military uh and and you know from my oh, experience yeah. of serving alongside uh german units uh in a variety of locations it's it's always funny to see a very similar reflection on their leadership from the junior officers and the and the mid-grade enlisted and it's it's really fascinating to me to hear someone else say that uh because there's there's definitely at least in my mind um a it is coalesced that the headquarters uh, organizations uh, were not at all representative of what the common line soldier or line airman felt. Uh, and in fact, that, that, that a lot of times they felt their own needs, wants, desires, uh, especially, you know, the, the F-104 is that writ large when um, almost anybody who was not on the take and had a, a knowledge of how uh, the the German uh, pilot cadre was working, they, they knew they weren't going to need that kind of airplane. Um, yet it was what had been foisted on them by Lockheed and a lot of uh, a lot of um, uh, foreign military sales, uh, just dirty deals to say to to leave it at that. Um, yeah, I mean, and and that's what 
that's what Hartman got, you know, when, when he raised the objection, uh, you know, because his superiors basically said, you know, hey, look, uh, the decision has been made. Uh, passive voice, <laughs> you know, it's right. just, uh, you know, let, <laughs> Shut let's, up in uh, color. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's let this one uh, go and, uh, you know, not ruffle too many feathers because he already kind of had, you know, when he put the, the black tulip on on the, the sabers, you know, uh, for, for morale or whatever, the, the idea of dredging up that, that, that symbol from, uh, from the war days, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that had already well, kind of made some people look at him. And that's a fascinating discussion because I was fortunate to go through flight training uh, in the mid to late 90s. And so I had German military officers who had actually served in a variety of German militaries. In other words, half of my students actually had time as East German officers before the fall of East Germany and its reassimilation. And the other yeah, half can... were West German officers. And and perspectives about something as simple as the black tulip were were fascinatingly diverse. I was I was talking to some friends of mine uh, today about symbology, and I said it was surprising to me to see in the dis in the discussions of symbology uh, things that East Germans didn't didn't find offensive that West Germans wanted to be immediately removed, and vice versa. Um, and it was just it, it told me what was the what was the post war indoctrination on either sides as to the evil of certain symbols or the other things that, that just were adopted because either a unit need to be rolled into that country's military or whatever. Well, and again, that, that was fluid too, right? Because that was, that was temporary. That, that was a, a temporary scuffle. I mean, if you look at the commemorative schemes uh, that West Germany put, you know, on everything from, you know, the, the, the phantom on, uh, well, I mean, they used the phantom forever. So there, there's, you know, a handful of different, uh, schemes that, that you, they used on, on their F4Fs uh, that are just dripping with the tulip design, yes. right? And, and, <laughs> yes. and so th this, this was a passing thing, you know, it, it, it was kind of part of that initial, uh, I think, uh, kind of cold wave of reality when, when uh, you know, guys like Hartman from the war had to sort of integrate in the new system where there was, there was just some discomfort and probably confusion over regulations and standards and procurement processes, you know, because the, 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 the one who, who questioned Hartman on this most directly, uh, as I understand it, uh, kind of tried to make it a, a question of like paint, you know, and, and, and sort of like a, right, a re which, which re I found resource funny. allocation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it wasn't that it was a symbol from World War II. It was that how dare you take this extra paint, put it on your airplane, which will <laughs> yeah. cost us more money. It will make it slower. It will make it less combat ineffective. You know, it will yeah, be at 97% yeah. efficiency instead of 98%. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. A very, a very German way of looking at things, mind you. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But it was funny. It was, it was that level of offense that how dare you do something out of your station wing commander, uh, rather than how dare you bring this symbol from your wartime career. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and when you, when you change an organization like that so drastically, I mean, there, you, you just have to think, I mean, I, I should be asking you about this. You know, you, you, there, you just have to think that there are so many potential points of confusion and complexity and conflict and misunderstanding and bureaucracy and everything else. And, and on top of that, you know, they, they really reworked the, the purpose of the organization where, you know, this was a, uh, you know, civilian run organization it is as far from the the chest beating um you know world war ii uh independent military uh as, as we can get uh, i mean it just it just must have been a a tough time probably for everybody involved 
Well, yes. And, and, you know, my friends who served in northern Afghanistan and the Masri Sharif and places like that with the German military have have fascinating observations about uh, things that, that you expect out of a military organization that either the Germans look at them and they go, no, we, we don't do that. That's, that's not how we do business. Or things that their leadership, you know, frowns upon, but are things that all of us do as military people, such as songs and chants and things like that but but obviously in the in the post-war german world things like that have such you know nazi overtones of of uh you know large events and things like that that they're they're severely frowned upon yeah you know there, there's one anecdote that that kind of struck struck me you know when they had the the initial ceremonies and, and they they um initiated the the new air force uh people remarked that the uniforms looked an awful lot like the ones from world war ii and I, I can't remember right now if it was Adenauer uh, or, or um, you know, one of the, the military leaders, but they, they said, you know, basically, well, wait a second, you know, these might look like the same uniforms, but now they have civilian rubber soles on the boots. Yes. Uh, you know, so it, it was, there, there was a lot Also of, a very, very German answer to the question. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was a, a, a trying time, I think, for, for everybody. These are, in fact civilian 20 millimeter cannons that are inside the airplane not military 20 millimeter cannons right <laughs> perfectly right. different they're only for self-defense not for offensive action uh, well, you know, uh, ostentatious peacefulness i think is exactly. one way that the, yes. the the german military was described in in comparison to, to others absolutely absolutely well before we talk about the analysis i want to i really i know we've been talking for quite a while here and we're going to keep going because this is a is a great topic uh, a great subject for us to go through i i wanted to talk symbology because it was fascinating for me to read your experience about coming face to face with a reenactor with the totenkopf on his collar for for a variety of reasons um one because symbology means things uh you know, also because, you know, I'll, I'll make a plug for my fellow friends in the Anything But a One podcast. They just released an episode discussing symbology and discussing that that what it means to one person, it doesn't mean to another and and the difficulty of of assuming what you know. Um, and and there was an interesting moment of, uh, uh, I'll say, of brotherhood there that I was I was happy to see somebody uh, who was from a uh, a family with Germanic background was as revulsed by that symbol as I am. And, and I tell people that I, I will never forget seeing a, uh, a family member, an extended family member, wearing a Totenkopf on his hat in a photo. And fortunately for that individual, I didn't see him in person because it probably would have been hard to deny in court the marks of my fingers around his throat. <laughs> it wouldn't have ended well, yeah. Yeah, but it's but it's a very visceral reaction that you describe uh, seeing the reenactor, and I and I think that's something that people have to understand about history is is you never know what symbology is going to cause people to think or to do. And you know, my family had left Germany well before uh, the Second World War, but the fact is, there's there's still at least in parts of my family a a shame over that, even though they were American citizens at that time, they're like, how could something like that happen in our country? And, and how could, um, could, could people do things as, as symbolized by SS symbology, third, you know, Panzer division, uh, third SS Panzer division symbology, like the death's head. Um, and I think we just have to be honest about that symbology. Did you, did you run across any of those other things uh, dealing with, with Hartman's biography? Well, I, I'm interested to hear you say that. It sounds like we have kind of similar, uh, gut reactions and, and, and backgrounds. I mean, this, 
the the scene you're talking about was kind of was, was in that phase zero. It was in that introduction, you know, where where I'm sort of uh, introducing myself to the reader and kind of you know where I'm coming from. And you, you make I think exactly the right point, which is symbols represent real things. Uh, we all kind of uh, witness them and derive meaning from them in in different ways. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean it, it was a it was it was a strange moment, you know. I I, I remember it, and, and I, I remember just sort of the the invo involuntary re uh, response to it, and almost immediately, you know, that kind of sense of revulsion sort of faded away, and I got really interested in my own response, right? Because it was something that was completely unexpected to me. Uh, it was kind of pre-conscious, right? And 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 so you know that this was. This was not a sophisticated, rational response yet. You know, the, the, this was exactly. Uh, you know, the, the the so often, you know, the emotion comes first, and then the rationality may or may not come later. We kind of try right. to convince ourselves that it's the other way around. But, um, but that you know, the, this was a, a fascinating experience to to me, and um, it I, I felt like putting it in there in in sort of that that initial section, both to sort of plant the seed in. The reader's mind that symbols are going to end up mattering and in, and in fact the symbol i mean the black tulip itself is literally the title of the book it was sort of the originating metaphor for the whole project you know back, back in grad school when you know when i started researching it um and um but also that you know uh, i'm i'm as um taken by my own experiences and as shaped by my own background as any of us are, and I, I thought that it was it was part of the work that I needed to do, uh, in in kind of exploring that, not to make the book about me, but to be able to kind of be real about uh, where I'm starting and uh, you know how I'm kind of looking at, at some of these things. Well, I think for us, as uh, you know, I speak for the Lead Pursuit, you know, members as as war gamers, it's always one of the most interesting things for us to see people's response when we we are surprised that symbology affects them now it's always easy for us as historians to say we'll deal with it tough luck you know the the uh, german bf109s had swastikas on their tail because that was the the uh, recognition insignia get over it but i think the mature individual in this has to realize that those symbols are going to cause a reaction for people of a variety of ethnic backgrounds a variety of religious and historical backgrounds um and it's it's one of those things that I think we have to be sensitive to. I think we also have to understand where it comes from and be prepared to have those kind of person-to-person -person discussions and relations and realize there may be times that historical accuracy is not needed. What is needed is to teach history rather than to to put a barrier in front of somebody. I know uh, the, the example of the guys at the uh, anything but a one podcast used uh, in their episode today was they said, if I was going to teach people about American Civil War and I was going to use a war game to do it, would I put the Confederate flag and the 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 blatantly battle flag, Army of Northern Virginia flag of the stars and bars on units that were out there? Or would I put a different flag or leave flags off entirely? Knowing that that flag itself could be a stumbling block to even having a discussion about lessons learned from the American Civil War. And, you know, fortunately, one of the guys on that podcast is a, a, a park ranger. And he tells the the joke of he, you know, when he worked at Manassas, 
half the time he had to be a Confederate guy talking about being a Confederate soldier and half the time he was a Union guy talking about being a Union soldier because oh, both stories had to be told. But you, you have to know how to, first of all, reach your audience before turning them off. And I think that, you know, I'm going to pontificate for a moment. I think for us as war gamers, that's something we need to be probably more sensitive to rather than less sensitive, but not shy away from having the tough discussions. Um, but anyway, I'll get off my soapbox and I'll move on to the, <laughs> I'll move on to your pontification, to your analysis section. Um, no, I and, mean, uh, the, the, the soapbox you're on should probably, you know, have more feet on it, more time, you know, more, more lengths of time, uh, as we go. These are hard and interesting questions. You know, I, I think you brought up a couple different sensitivities that, uh, that we can afford to have with, with things like this, you know, not just, you know, what do symbols mean for people? Um, you know, but, I, I mean, you talk about wargaming and, and, and things like that, and, and I mean, I mean I'm an, an obsessed scale modeler, always have been, right? Since I was a kid, I've built uh, plastic models of military planes, everything, you know. Then from... you know our poor, terrible addiction. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, talk about obsession, right? Like, it, yeah, it goes way back and it goes deep. I'm, I'm yeah. So I, uh, I think we're, we're, we're nerds of a, of a similar... Uh, variety in that in that sense, you know that, that kind of passion, um, you know. But I sort of started having having this conversation with myself about a lot of the things you just described because, you know, the 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 Eric of five years ago, building a model of a Messerschmitt BF one hundred and nine, probably would have thought about that differently than I do now, right? I mean, back back then, you know, having had the experience of researching and writing Black Tulip, right? And, and of course, all the other things that we are and ought to be uh, aware of, uh, you know, in, in, in society today. Uh, back then, it, it seemed a little bit more sufficient to me, I think, to sort of tell myself, well, you know, this is just a decal. You know, this, this swastika, it, it's, um, you know, I'm mostly concerned with it's, you know, the accuracy of its proportions and its coloration. You know, I'm, I know that I'm not. You are one of those rivet counters, aren't you? Oh, goodness. Don't get me started. I mean, we got we to gotta restart the recording if you want to get into that. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, but th there's sort of this distinction that I've sort of wrestled with where I think in, in this context, and I'm speaking mostly, I'm, I'm talking about myself here in, in this modeling, but I think maybe other folks can relate. Uh, you know, you're building a model about, of, of a German machine or whatever, you know, BF-109. And the idea is, it, it's, it's one thing to say, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not supporting Nazism or, or I'm not supporting racism or hatred by doing this, which can be completely accurate to you, right, you know, and, and authentic. It's, it's, that's not the same thing as, you know... Let me, let me put this a different way. Avoiding supporting something bad is not the same thing as actually supporting something good, right? So, yes, <laughs> you know, in, in, in my past modeling life before, honestly, I, I had a lot of strange and hard conversations with myself about Hartman and all the things we've been talking about. I probably would have thought about that a lot less, right? You know, but now, you know, a month ago, I... I I bought a model of a you know an Airfix 148 scale BF109E. It's a quality kit, um, uh, you know, and I I, I had a, a slightly different conversation with myself 
about it. And I'll be perfectly honest, I haven't resolved that conversation yet. But it, it's been one of the, honestly, one of the gifts of this experience, having, you know, gone through these the, the, the years more than I would like to admit of doing the research and writing the book, um, that I, I'm, I'm kind of looking at a, at a lot of things in, in a different kind of way. And, you know, to, to go back to the start, you know, symbols matter. Uh, our, our creative output has all kinds of different implications. And e each person is going to have their own kind of way in and, and their own experience of it. Um, but it's something that's got me thinking. Well, it, it came full circle to me today as I was in the process of figuring out what models, what what paint schemes would go into the next uh, wargaming demo kit that we left with the store. And it suddenly hit me that my very default answer to Trevor, one of the members of the podcast who does my commission painting for this stuff, when he said, hey, you're doing one of nines, do you want swastikas on the tail? I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. We want swastikas on the tail. Then I suddenly thought today, and I said, well, you know, first of all, is that a, if I'm gifting it to this store, is that a question that I answer? Or is that a question that the store owner really answers? What, what does he want in his display case? Is he is he perfectly representing history or does he want a model that anyone will take out of the display case and play with and, and, you know, enjoy a game with and not feel uh, a burden historical or otherwise on. And it was, it was just an interesting thought to go through. And I don't know where my, you know, end result thoughts are, I'll be honest, um, because there's always a, just like modelers, war gamers were always bad about at the end of the day going, why can't we just do what history did? Well, because history's full of bad things. <laughs> somebody, somebody has to be the bad guys, and unfortunately, the bad guys sometimes don't need to be perfectly represented. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're 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 starting from the right approach, though, which is getting out of your own frame of reference to think about it. Right? You're thinking about, yeah, you know, absolutely the, the other the other guy, and and I mean that gets complicated and hard to even contain in your brain. Uh, at, at times, you know, these, um, these decisions, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just, <laughs> I think about modeling and, and all this, and it, it's awful easy to kind of just stay in your happy place with all this, uh, and, and this history. And I, 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 I speak from experience, you know, and just sort of trying to figure all that out. Um, well, and I think that's the, the whole port to your analysis section is that you really, at the end of the book, you you realize you have raised more questions than you probably will ever have answers to, but it is the process. It isn't so much that we know exactly who Eric Hartman was and why he did everything he did, but the the process of analyzing and being honest about it rather than uh, assuming that the history that was very glowing that was written of him that minimized uh, either Nazi involvement or, or why he chose to continue fighting on the Eastern Front against the Russians. Uh, you know, that, that it really, it, it's the process more than the end result. So I, I won't quote again from you. I'll, I'll quote from another guy we interviewed, a, a guy I consider a good friend, Jay Stout. Uh, when he wrote, he said, I'm jealous. It's a wonderfully different and wonderfully written work. Schmidt is no fawning fanboy of the greatest ace of all time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> instead, he is a sympathetic and insightful researcher who produced an engrossing and thoughtfully wondering analysis. And I, think he's being nice when he says thoughtfully wondering. I, I love how Jay said that. <laughs> um, but yes, you you do you do hit all points uh, and you make you you tell us right up front it won't be uh, in chronological in chronological order. But he says a thoughtfully wondering analysis of the multidimensional Hartman that is unlike and better than anything ever done. And I think if you take what Jay said there, the the point is you really dig into, but no, you can't answer the question of who Eric Hartman is. And I think that's the takeaway from the analysis. 
Yeah, you know, and at some point, there, there was a moment in the process where I, I, I figured out that I just had to let myself off the hook from deciding about, you know, Eric Hartman as a man, right? But, you know, who was he in his How would you say that? I can, I can see that in the writing. I don't, I, don't, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I caught that until you said that, but yes, now I, now I see that. Because, I mean, frankly, that, that, that's, that's artificial, right? You know, this, this neat tidiness, this, this clarity that we, we, you know, in a lot of ways are really drawn to in history and, and especially in difficult uh, conversations that are, are hard to resolve. Uh, that's, that, that clarity, that, that's about us. That, that's something that we impose on, on history, not something that's particularly natural in it. And that was kind of one of those guiding ideas that I sort of accidentally became a believer in the more I learned about, about Hartman. And so eventually, you know, my mission with the book was not to give people a new refreshed or, or substitute, you know, truth with a capital T about Eric Hartman. And, you know, here's, you know, what uh, thou shalt think about what, you know, this guy, and then let's move on to another dogfight scene and talk about camouflage colors. Like, there, there was always going to be that unresolvable uh, part of it. And I actually think that that's kind of the point, right? Uh, you know, a large point of the book is that this clarity that we seek, this, this simplicity that we seek in things that are difficult for us to resolve, that's about us. You know, that, that, that's, that's something that we're bringing to it. And um, we just, we end up with one-dimensional comic book characters if we're, we're guided too much by that and if we can't sit with complexity and if we can't sit with ambiguity. Because, I mean, you're going to write a biography about a soldier from World War II Germany, you know, I mean, you better be able to tolerate some ambiguity and some, some complexity or else you're, you're uh, you know, you're building the story in, in, uh, in uh, maybe a, a suspect kind of way. I think that is probably the hardest piece for a lot of us to come back to. And, and I think we want, we want our heroes to be heroes. I, I may disagree with you on some of your, your discussion of the anti-hero in there, um, because I, I don't think it's a, I don't know, I don't think it's a cultural phenomenon. I think it's something that's been there since the, the dawn of time. I think we have, if anything, in recent history, made polarized heroes. I don't know, I, I could easily be wrong on that. But I think there's certainly a point where we need to come to an understanding of of why we continually tell these people's tales and i i draw you know, our purpose for the hero everything back to the the earliest days and it's really a, a collection of the lessons learned and so if it's only the good then you're never going to know the mistakes not to make and whether you're reading odysseus whether you're reading uh, uh all my other Great epics are escaping me at this time. My literary teachers would be so ashamed. <laughs> uh, I, I won't tell. <laughs> whether whether you're thinking about any one of them, um, then you're you're really missing the point that there has to be the good with the bad, and there has to be the the flawed hero, and there has to be an understanding of the hero's motivations. Um, so I, I I really enjoyed the book. You know, I, I know we've gone on much longer than our podcasts usually do. Um, so I, I obviously need to wrap this up, but uh, I enjoyed the book. It is a difficult 
but enjoyable read. And I say it's difficult because it, it requires introspection. Uh, and I and I really thank you for that piece because it was good for me um, as a military veteran to undergo some of that introspection uh, with questions asked about something that happened years ago, not forcing me to look directly in the mirror of my own career, um, but mirroring th that through someone else's. So I think that's an invaluable uh, thing to to take away from the book. Huh. Well, well, thanks, and, and and I appreciate your perspective on this too. You know, I've I've learned from you here too. Uh, so, uh, you know, thanks for for inviting the conversation. Absolutely. Steve, any, I know, I know we've kind of run over you in this whole conversation. Haven't let you speak. Uh, Steve, any, uh, any last minute questions, thoughts or otherwise? No, it's fascinating. You know, it's, uh, one of the great things about wargaming is I'm very much, uh, into the, with my background, the engineering side of it, the aviation side of it. And truthfully, I am a huge hero worship fanboy guy, right? Like, oh yeah, Richtoff and 80 kills. Oh yeah, Eric Hartman, 352 kills. So to kind of, you know, step out of the pop culture and into more of the cerebral kind of uh, thinking of who these guys really were is just the fun thing about wargaming that the hobby kind of leads you down different paths and you never kind of know what you're going to be exploring. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I can relate to that too, though. I, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say, Steve, that, yeah, you know, any of us have to feel guilty about, uh, you know, having the, the, the passion and the excitement and all that. It, it's just, you know, both, both things can exist at the same time, right? We, we can have the enthusiasm and, you know, the, be, be drawn to these stories and, and, uh, you know, the, the dogfight scenes and contrails, you know, over Britain during the Battle of Britain and this evocative, you know, it, it's all evocative. It, it, it's fascinating. And at the same time, uh, you know, we can, we can, uh, look at, at something from uh, from a different point of view and, and sort of I'm, I'm, again I'm kind of referencing myself and, and my own history sort of challenge uh, uh, challenge challenge the, the the happy place a little bit <laughs> absolutely sometimes it's good to make you feel uncomfortable reading history <laughs> Brett anything uh, you'd like to offer uh, closing up well, just to say, you know, it was a very thoughtful book that's been mentioned and but something you just said Eric made me think of it you know it's it, we have this fascination with something that we forget is super terrible at the same time. And it's something we certainly don't wish on our children. So uh, you, you help uh, explore that without it simply being, you know, all the fun stuff, you know, and glamorous. So thank you. Yeah, no, th thanks for, for mentioning it, Brad. Appreciate it. Well, Eric, thanks for uh, showing up on the podcast and enduring uh, our questioning for an hour and a half and, oh, no, and going through the topics. It's a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really, uh, really enjoyed the book. Like I said, I think uh, for most of our Blood Red Skies players and war gamers that are out there, uh, it will make you uncomfortable. It's a book you should read. It's a, It's got questions you should ask. It is not full of the... Uh, uh, of contrails and bullets and, uh, you know, wonderful, wonderful stories of how aces are made. Um, but it tells you the story that is around how the people who become aces are made and what are their, what are their ways of thinking and what are their belief systems. So I, you know, highly recommend the book to everybody, uh, have a chance to go out there, pick up the book, tell us what you think. Uh, please leave us feedback, good, bad, or otherwise. Throw your spears early, uh, as people have been wont to do on the Lead Pursuits page. Um, and, uh, leave us, uh, feedback, there on Facebook, on Instagram, social media, all over the place, or on our website. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we will talk to you soon about something involving gaming. Thought I clicked on record. All right, guess what? You know, the first technical glitch of the night.
<laughs> Sorry, I didn't catch <laughs> that. Gonna be Brett's going to be my backup on that. Like, hey, dude, you didn't hit record. I clicked it. It didn't start. So we're going to start again. Shit, oh, I'm going to have to remember what I said. All right. Yeah, exactly. We'll say something totally different. No one will ever know. That's yeah. the best part.